Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Emperor's New Groove. Long ago, in a faraway land, there was a prosperous kingdom ruled by a young emperor. Ha! Boom, baby! He had a serious attitude. You threw off my groove. I'm sorry, but you've thrown off the Emperor's groove. Sorry. An evil advisor. By the way, you're fired. I'll take over and rule the Empire. And one major problem. I'll just poison him with this. Uh. Hey, Kronk, can you top me off, pal? Be a friend? <laughs> a llama? He's supposed to be dead. Yeah, weird. Take him out of town and finish the job. Now, his only hope is a humble peasant. Demon Llama! Demon Llama? Where? Ah! You kidnapped me! Why would I kidnap a llama? You're the criminal mastermind, not me. What? Tell me Cusco's dead. Ow! Well, he's not as dead as we would have hoped. Touchy. Why did I risk my life for a selfish brat like you? Now I feel really bad. Bad llama. Ooh, why me? The Emperor's got a new look. Ah! A new partner. We're gonna have to work together to get out of this. You know, it's a good thing you're not a big fat guy or this would be really difficult. <laughs> and a brand new groove. Walt Disney Pictures presents <laughs> The Emperor's New Groove. Uh-oh. Don't tell me. We're about to go over a huge waterfall. Yep. Sharp rocks at the bottom? Most likely. Bring it on. Booyah! Joining Sharon and I once again in our continued trek through the Disney canon is Daniel Floyd. The Emperor's New Groove was arguably Disney's first screwball comedy. It was released to little fanfare in 2001 and had spent four and a half years in development, much of it under a different director, Roger Allers of the Lion King fame, and under the title of Kingdom of the Sun. Now, Dan, you said you have some pretty strong feelings on this one. It's more slightly that I'm just fascinated by this behind-the-scenes story, and a large part of that is thanks to a very difficult to find a documentary about it and it's very difficult to find because disney has tried to bury it at every possible opportunity and disney are good at burying things they, they are good at burying things but this fortunately for the world this one time someone in the uk had a rough copy of it and leaked it on youtube for about a week and that was all the time it took for the world the rest of us to have it nice basically. uh so it was, it was directed by um, Sting's other half. Yes. Sting, very important to this project. So, yeah, the, the, um, I guess I'll talk about it first. The, yeah, go for documentar it. the documentary is called The Sweatbox. It, it is one of the very few Disney production train wreck turned success stories that we can actually get an inside look on thanks to this documentary. Mm. So one of Sting's conditions for accepting the job was that uh, his – is she his wife or just uh, other half or just – let me uh, just uh, sig significant other. She's yeah. a filmmaker. Yeah. And uh, she the condition was that she'd be given permission to film a documentary about uh, the film's production. At the time, it was called Kingdom of the Sun. Mm. Um, this documentary was screened exactly one time at a film festival in Toronto and then Disney buried it. And for, like, fortunately, yeah, that YouTube leak happened. And now we can actually see it. And I'm so glad that it did leak, and I wish they'd just released it, because honestly, it is the perfect documentary about the process of making an animated feature film. Yeah. Like, I have never seen another documentary that really captures in such, that just captures the whole experience in such an honest way. Like, the excitement of seeing a rough idea come together, the years of creative investment by talented people, the heartbreak of having the order come down to scrap it and start over and the reality of people just not being able to muster enthusiasm for the new direction and the constant looming anxiety of not knowing if this film is going to turn out good or bad, just always hanging over everybody's heads. Or if you could get just, shut down and be out on the street tomorrow. Yeah. Just the fact that everything about this process and the fact that in the end of it all, this, it still results in a wonderful film, a wonderful story, great piece of art. 
just well, very different from how they originally uh, intended. Oh yeah, like other documentaries will talk about all this kind of stuff, and or and there will be lots of behind the scenes uh, videos that will talk about. Oh, there was this one time in the production that was just real, like the the black day for Toy Story. We'll yeah, go Toy Story we'll is immediately thought of that one. Yeah. yeah, and you'll go back and you'll say, and here's what happened, and boy, that was a really rough time, and we had to scrap everything, and just and they'll give you an idea, like a. In your head, you'll understand, okay, like this is... Like you're disconnected, you know, in retrospect, 17 years later, we can say this. Yeah, exactly. And then right afterward, they'll start saying, but then we just, we got back up on our feet, we started again, and we started, and we just started over, we started remaking the film, and then, and it's immediately back to the positive and the feeling, and you know where the film ends up, you know the film's great, because they're talking about it this way, so you, (laughs) you already know that it has a happy ending to this. But something about this one, because it carries you through every step of the process and the people who are like you are watching are in the middle of it. There, this isn't a retrospective sense for a lot of people. You're just seeing people who are in the middle of having these really rough, like you're seeing people at some of their lowest moments or at some of their like harshest, meanest, most brutal moments. And it's, yeah. but there's an honesty. It's very un-Disney. It's very un-Disney in the way it's presented, but you can see that the animators involved have got all this passion. Like Alice himself specifically, director of The Lion King, who had so much passion for this, just getting crushed and crushed by it. Yeah. Um, Trudy so, Styler, I, by the way, is the name of the director. She was actually Sting's wife. You. And yes, she was also okay. on the cast of Kingdom of the Sun, but she got axed. Uh, mm. I guess, all right, let me, let me talk about Kingdom of the Sun. So what eventually became Emperor's New Groove is a super different film than what was originally intended. So it was originally pitched by Roger Allers, who co-directed The Lion King. It was going to be called Kingdom of the Sun, and it was meant to be another um, epic, Renaissance-style mm. Disney film, like a lot like Beauty and the Beast yeah. and Mermaid and Hunchback. And it was a drama. Uh, there there was a love story. It had a whole Prince and the Pauper angle. Owen Wilson was going to play one of the characters, uh, the original version of Pacha. Uh, imagine if the original Pacha looked exactly like Cusco and then they swapped places and the the whole being turned into a llama thing was still there after the swap Yzma turns Yzma who wants to put out the sun because it makes her wrinkly turns um, Cusco into a llama and then threatens Owen Wilson's Pacha and says you've got to stay on the throne and there was no crunk because it was this little stone guy played by Harvey Firestein (laughs) yeah now it it was a very very different type of film. It you got the sense that um Allers wanted to make a he wanted to make a big moving epic. He he was going for a very Pocahontas hunchback kind of angle with this. Mm. And uh be, of course Pocahontas and Hunchback had during like during early production of this film had very much underperformed at the box office. So mm. Disney executives started to get a little bit wary of the well-worn epic musical formula. Mm, and they, nice. they wanted to start steering Kingdom of the Sun in a bit more of a comedy direction. And to that end, they brought in Mark Dindle to uh, co-direct. And Mark had just directed Cats Don't Dance for Warner Brothers, which is a great animated comedy, by the way, mm-hmm. and has a very, very similar style of humor and quick snappy timing as to what the emperor's new groove eventually had oh nice i gotta watch that i I recommend it it's warner brothers will not release that give that a proper even a proper dvd release it's had like it's in full (sighs) screen and crummy it's definitely not blu-ray right now on vhs kids yeah it's i mean there is a dvd release and the pal version actually might be better than the uh than the version we've got here in the states but it's but yeah it is it's worth finding it's uh, similar to the Croods. I'm not going to say it is great or phenomenal, but it's really good and it's really funny, and I, I recommend it. Okay. Uh, but anyway, as I understand it, um, these two directors, uh, Allers and Dendel, their styles and visions for the film didn't really overlap. Uh, Allers was still trying to make that epic drama he had in his head. Dendel was pushing for the snappy comedy, which they brought him on to do. So the film started getting pulled in a couple different directions with some mismatched sequences. Mm. But production was still moving, and... About three years in, animation was about 25% complete. The actors were all recorded. Sting had written and pretty much finished six songs, many of which you can actually still hear on the soundtrack now, and they're actually really catchy and good. Eartha Kitt had also sung her uh, Isma's song about yeah. to put out the sun. I like that song. Like, mm. it's, 
it's not in the film and it doesn't really have a place in the film anymore, but just for more Yzma, I guess. Oh, and she's been animated so the good. whole time by Andreas Deja, the uh, guy who yeah. uh, animated uh, Gaston and Jafar. So he was really involved with like her as this villain. But when the change happened, he was off and someone else was on. Yeah, but you can definitely still feel his influence mm. of design for who Yzma became. But even if Yzma's character changed and was, was simplified ultimately, like uh, you can still feel his fingerprints there, which, mm. which is good. But yeah, I feel... I feel bad for him. Um, feel bad for a lot of people in this production, actually. Yes, yeah. But, I mean, the film was pretty well along, but budgets were running high. The story still wasn't quite coming together by most accounts. There are some people who say that it was very strong and really believed in it, but it really sounds like, from most of what I've read, that it it still had a lot of problems. And more importantly, it was falling behind. To begin with, Disney executives had a lot of faith in Allers because The Lion King early on had been plagued with story problems in its early stages more than most Disney films and Allers was one of the guys who was really instrumental in reshaping it into being the most successful animated film ever so I mean that earns you a lot of trust so they believed in him for a good long while but Kingdom under the Kingdom of the Sun still wasn't coming together years in the announced release date of summer 2000 was rapidly approaching and the accounts I've read differ slightly on this progression of events that happened next, but the best I can piece it together, it came time to show the film in progress to some of the Disney executives, uh, Schumacher and Schneider. Which somebody, by the way, uh, compared to having your pants pulled down and your hands chopped off at the same time so you can't pull your pants back up again and everyone stares at you. That's what showing your 25% completed film is like. Yeah, no, it's it's super... brilliant metaphor. I can only imagine for for the directors and the the higher-ups in the film, it must be Mm. torture like that. Even for people further down the chain, having seen this in a much... Uh, condensed form. Please see this like I'm seeing it. See it with the final animation. See it with the full orchestral score. Yeah, it's it's a very intense moment because you know that these that a lot hangs on these screenings going well. It's like watching Lord Uh, of the Rings in uh, uh, in storyboard form, basically. Yeah, and fortunately, I mean, the good executives have been. I mean, Schumacher and Schneider, they've been. This isn't their first time to the rodeo. They know how, like, they know how early films look. They've seen the process many a time. They both have theater backgrounds. They know what in progress stuff looks like, and they are pretty and they are pretty smart a lot of the time. So you could definitely be showing it to worse executives, but still, that doesn't make this this these sort of screenings any less tense. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they're upstairs in this meeting right now, and it's going to determine the fate of a whole project, right? And I hear they're pitching four different outlines. Cool. Four. Uh, the rumors are flying like crazy. It's an expensive proposition, too, because some of the rumors I've heard are all the voice castings changing. Oh, my God, I think my character might not be in the movie anymore. So I heard one of them is not, it doesn't even take place in Peru. It could be in Jamaica or something, I don't know. You've got to add, you know... Different movie altogether. Right. You're going to have to add dreadlocks to Pacha. <laughs> so, I don't know, um... I heard a rumor that uh, Sting couldn't renew his contract because he was too busy doing his album, that uh, Randy had been fired, that Mark had been fired, that Roger had been fired, that Manko was going to be the main character of the movie, that Pacha was out of the movie, that they changed the setting of the movie from Peru to Nebraska and they were all going to be sheep instead of llamas. There is an air of excitement, you know, amidst the, the terror of all this. I guess tough is for Roger, really. Well, yeah, because Roger sometimes, uh, you know, he's, he'll be in love with the sequence. And when the upheaval happens, it's the killing your darlings thing. He, he might be so in love with something, and it, it really hurts to lose it. We just have to wait for the word to come down, where the story is headed. I hear that uh, Isma is still in the movie. That's a good thing. <laughs> I like that. Hello, Sting. Hi, Randy. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Well, I, I, I called to sort of... Uh, update you on where we are at the moment. Please update me. Basically, we've been um, in story hell sort of for a month trying to come up with better versions that included the original story. Okay. So the act one is the same. Act one is the same. Basically, he's taken back to uh, Homer's village. Uh Uh-huh. You know, the ladies. By the third week, we had about six different basic outlines of what this was about. And our heads were starting to swim as they they get that way when you're stuck up in that room just thinking and yapping about it day after day. The fact is, the movie's not building to that moment. And we tried to focus again on, you know, what's the kernel of the story, what's the heart of the story, which is basically that a common man could teach 
an arrogant man how to be a good leader. So we thought, or I thought we had done, you know, a pretty good job working towards that, but it wasn't flying. And Peter and Tom would look at it and say, well, it's, it's neither fish nor fowl. It's, what are we doing here? And hey, come on in, Mr. Village. Sort of at a, at a last ditch moment. Chris Williams, our story guy, yeah. sort of came up with another idea and they just kind of threw it up as a, well, Tom encouraged them, but just do a blue sky thing. Just try something crazy, just off the top of your heads. So they came up with an entirely different storyline, except that it involves a prince who becomes a llama. But yeah, the screening went really bad. It went horribly. And it's difficult to tell. I can't tell if this was due to the actual major story problems the film still had, or if a lot of it was because the executives were still really concerned about making another massive Renaissance-style epic drama film in the wake of multiple flops. Mm. I'm willing to... I'm guessing it's a bit of both, honestly. Um, either way, the executives had definitely lost faith in Allers at this point and his vision for the film. Uh, worse, the film Allers wanted to make was going to require at least six months, maybe a year more than it was scheduled for to finish. Mm. And they had was, schedules to keep with McDonald's and Coca-Cola for their promotion. Yeah, they'd already made some, like there were merch contracts already in place for a summer 2000 release. And they, they were not going to, they were not going to push back, like push that further, especially given they'd already kind of lost faith in them. So he was refused that additional time to make the movie he wanted. Uh, production was halted on the movie. Massive rewrites were ordered. And this all hit Allers pretty hard. He, mm. he could, he could see the studio had lost confidence in him and didn't want to make the film he was trying to make. And he didn't really, understandably, he didn't want to stay to work on a film that his heart, heart wasn't in. So he withdrew from the project. And a lot of the lead animators did the same thing, knowing that the years of work they'd invested in designing these characters and animating a lot of these sequences was about to get tossed out. Yeah. If, if the characters weren't gone completely, they were going to be heavily changed. But the worst thing was for Alice that uh, he wasn't able to then take that to another studio or take that somewhere else or do it himself. They kept enough of the basic story that he would, would had to just basically leave it. Yeah, and that's, that's... I mean, it's a reality of this business sometimes, but that it, it is not rough. And that that's one of the things that I... It's one of the things I like the sweatbox for because you you feel it. Mm. You you absolutely feel what that must be like to have to go through. Incidentally, the uh, film that got those McDonald's and Coca-Cola promotional um, things that was just dinosaur. They stuck dinosaurs on the side of the Coke cans and the and the McDonald's Happy Meals. They stuck plastic dinosaurs in there and and it got that release date. So they just shifted things around, which suggests that maybe dinosaurs. Uh, Dinosaurs production was actually due for the year after, perhaps, and, and they had to sort of fast track it. They did, and it, and some in the development have said that it, the movie suffered for it. I question how much better that extra time would have made it. I, I think. Well, the script would have, been, it would have been the script ultimately. That that would have been yeah. the first thing done, and ultimately, it's so tedious that no amount of like beautiful style on the dinosaurs was going to change that. Exactly. It's it's problems are mostly story based, and you can fix some story problems late in production, but especially with a really experimental, technological, expensive investment kind of thing like. Mm -hmm dinosaur cg would have been early on i'm willing to bet that that extra time was not going to make a significantly better film than what we got yeah. but all the same so this allers left and mark dindle was left as the solo director and eisner who was fed up with this movie by by this point declared that if he was not given a solid new pitch for how to save this film in two weeks then the entire thing was just going to be scrapped Gee. so dindle and the story team would just put their heads down and came up with a bunch of different pitches. I think there were about four different ideas they had. And uh, Chris Williams helped come up with the idea of w w what they eventually pitched, which was a lighthearted buddy comedy movie with a snappy, quick Chuck Jones kind of pace. Yeah. Uh, like Looney Tunes or uh, Wild and Wolfy. Yeah. And uh, that idea was given the green light. They got the go ahead. They got a small deadline extension. Not very much. It got pushed to Christmas 2000. And they were just told to go, go, go. And so the whole movie was overhauled. overhauled. A lot of characters were scrapped. Uh, Owen Wilson's Pacha was scrapped. Wow. Half of Sting's songs and tons of completed animation were tossed out. Sting was uh, not happy about that. He, he no. spends most of the movie, the uh, documentary going, I was really uh, sort of geared up for this, and now I kind of, uh, you know. And he's basically saying in no uncertain terms, I wanted to get this done by this point, and now I'm still doing it, and I'm not happy 
Yeah. Which is, basically. you know, fair enough, ultimately. They, they messed him around. and uh, Yeah. And I would say Sting is an odd choice for a epic Prince and the Pauper set in Mesoamerica. But the overwhelming response to my poo-pooing of Phil Collins for Tarzan was, I love Phil Collins in Tarzan. So I am, well, I was dead wrong. Turns out Phil Collins was the right choice. But when Sting does turn up in this with my funny friend and me, it's, he is the one massive sore thumb that sticks out. He does, like, basically they should just have said, we're so sorry, Sting. We messed you around. Here's your money. We're going to do completely different music. Yeah, I'll I'll give him credit for I actually do like a lot of his original songs for the film, what it was originally, which mm. you can hear, hear a lot of them on the soundtrack. And the one yeah. that's still in that was there, part of the, his uh, rider. They, they still stuck the deleted songs on the soundtrack. And thank goodness, because a lot of them are great. Mm. Uh, but but the and the one that they left in the uh, oh goodness, in the what's quiet the main time of no, no 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 well no no not that was one. Like, the, he uh, was born and raised to yeah yeah sung by Tom Jones Sting, yeah Sting wrote that too and that's great and I love it yeah. His involvement was ultimately reduced to the intro-outro song and the, that ballad for the end credits. David Spade and Eartha Kitt's characters were heavily revised. Mm-hmm. John Goodman came in as the new Pacha. Patrick Warburton was added. created, Thanks, basically. God. <laughs> from the voice of Patrick Warburton. I just... Yeah. Uh, I think that was the thing that really struck me. When, when we, we, we saw this one, and we weren't, we, I think we, we were amused by the uh, trailer, but we did not expect Kronk to be as funny as he was. The whole thing is... Can we talk about the film? Let's talk about the film now, because it, it, okay, the title was changed to Emperor's New Groove, and yeah. what it turned into, I don't know how good Kingdom of the Sun would have ultimately been. Maybe it actually would have been a great film if they, if the executives had, had faith and stuck in it. As good but, as, but, if not better than, The Road but, to El Dorado. But what I will say is that the Emperor's New Groove, which is what we got, is still awesome, and it is hilarious and Disney's funniest movie ever. This is the most underappreciated Disney film of all time. Agreed. No, I love this film style. I, I love the rapid fire comedy pace, especially like once we get to the last third and we mm. the, uh, everyone runs back to Pacha's house, the pace of the comedy mm. cranks up to three times faster. And it is just you, you start missing jokes. It's too it goes too fast. You're laughing too hard. Political manipulators There are blue bloods with the intellects of fleas There are kings and petty tyrants Who are so lacking in refinements Did he better see this ringing from the tree? He was born and raised to rule No one has ever been this cool In a thousand years of aristocracy An enigma and a mystery in Mesoamerican history, the quintessence of perfection, that is he. He's the sovereign lord of the nation, he's the hippest dude in creation. He's the cat in the emperor's new clothes. He's of such selected reading, generations have been leading to this miracle of life that we all know. What's his name? Captain Creation He's the Alpha, the Omega, A to Z And this perfect world will spin Around his every little whim Cause this perfect world begins and ends with What's his name? We start at the beginning. First off, it starts off by breaking the fourth wall. Is that the first Disney film to do that? 
No I mean, there's there's Disney films where it's like, hey, I'm Alan Adele. I'm going to tell you about old Robin Hood. And you've had narrated films like that before. But Arguably, there's never been a point where the action has been frozen. Your narrator leans his head in and starts drawing play-by-plays on the screen. And eventually, at one point, arguing with himself on screen. Yeah, no, that it's not definitely nothing ever to that extent. You, mm. the, maybe like Solidos Amigos and stuff has some kind of a fourth wall breaking, just gag bits and. Uh, genie in Aladdin will, mm. with his final little has lots of fourth wall breaking stuff, yeah. but not quite to the extreme pushed in this film. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's a narrative construct to uh, to to propel the story along, and um, the it, it feels a little bit Shane Black in the way that Iron Man three and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang went uh, uh, with Robert Downey Jr.'s sort of screwball narration. Notably, this podcast was actually recorded way back in March 2015. So we had no idea about Deadpool. There have now been two Deadpool films since this was recorded. So it's like Deadpool. It allows you to see it entirely from Kuzco's point of view and and see the immense flaws in the character immediately. But because you're seeing it, because he's making you laugh, the odious character that is Kuzco is worth watching as opposed to just, why am I watching this guy? He's horrible. Yeah, if he wasn't funny, this mm. movie would be a lot harder. God, yeah. Yeah. It sets you up with sympathy for him early on as well, because that's one of the things they kept coming back to with the early drafts of the film um, that wasn't washing, was they didn't seem to get who you were supposed to be uh, getting behind, who it was you were supposed to be rooting for. Is it the pauper? Is it the um, Is it Yzma? Exactly. And I think the the fact that they can come straight in with this, with this, uh, the arrogance on one hand, and yet he's sitting under a leaf getting absolutely drenched mm. on the other hand, it kind of lays out from the very beginning where the film's going to go. <laughs> yeah. And it's just in case you're... Llamas. Yeah, weird. <laughs> But just in case you're not able to get on board with David Spade's Cusco for a while, fortunately, you also have Pacha. Yeah. And you're Pacha nice is... of a character. Yeah, is the easiest guy in, in the world and the entire movie to love. Mm. And this is fresh off, I think, was this just before Monsters, Inc.? Uh, would have been, yeah. Um, so um, people were already on board with... Uh, okay. Christmas 2000. November 2000. Oh, Jesus. Right, okay, so a month before this came out. So basically, you were spoiled for choice in terms of Disney and John Goodman. So yeah, yeah actually, just on the back of... This might actually have almost been an like, uh, you know, carefully planned. Like, well, obviously, um, John was there doing the voice from uh, uh, Jake, Su- Jake Sully. James P. Sullivan. Jake Sully's from Avatar. And, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, must have like been in Disney's good books at that point. So then they called him back to do voice for Pacha. Um, but yeah, no, he's the uh, y- your standard guy so that you can play all of this terrible behavior off someone who says, no, dude, that's not cool. That's my John Goodman voice. <laughs> <laughs> he's animated by Bruce Smith, mm-hmm. who is the same guy who actually um, will later do uh, Piglet in the Winnie the Pooh film and mm-hmm. the Shadow Man in uh Princess and the Frog. Oh, you know, if you'd asked me who did the Shadow Man, I'd have said Andreas Deja. I can't. It's kind of sad that he didn't get to come back and do Vasilia. Yeah, but but, I, but I, I've actually met Bruce Smith. He is he is actually pretty awesome. Oh, okay. He's a better animator than I'll ever be. He is <laughs> good. Um, well, then excellent. I'm glad it couldn't have happened to a, a better guy. Then uh, I just wish he'd get more work these days. Agreed. Yeah. Well, that's a whole other thing. We'll talk about that later. Uh, but uh, yeah. Um, so as well as uh, to, to, to offset Cusco uh, and um, also speaking of Piglet, you get the voice actor. Uh, hang on, let me just uh, find the actual name. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, John uh, John Fiedler, the old man thrown out of Cusco's castle. In uh, uh, he's in the sequel, his name is revealed to be Rudy. That's Kronk's new groove. It's rubbish. Not going to talk about it. Um, but yeah, he he was uh, Piglet in the, uh, in the classic uh, Winnie the Pooh's, and I think this is his last role. Wow. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, um, it's, it's a, l- a lovely sort of like way to sort of throw you in in a way that you don't like Kuzco and you disapprove of everything he does. But at the same time, as unconventional as the structure is, as unconventional as the presentation is, the structure is very much once upon a time there was this, then this happened, 
And it's 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 got the sort of the fairy tale like you know once upon a time there was a spoiled prince but rather than a, a beautiful enchantress coming along with a rose it was a, a drink cocktail with llama potion in it. Pull the lever, crunk. Wrong lever. Huh? Why do we even have that lever? Ah, how shall I do it? Oh, I know. I'll turn him into a flea. A harmless little flea. And then I'll put that flea in a box. And then I'll put that box inside of another box. And then I'll nail that box to myself. And when it arrives, ah, <laughs> I'll smash it with a hammer. Or to save on postage, I'll just poison him with this. Take it, Kronk. <laughs> feel the power. Oh, I can feel it. Our moment of triumph approaches. <laughs> it's dinner time. Which, of course, leads us to Yzma and Kronk. Um, Eartha Kitt, it felt like she'd been waiting for a Disney film her entire life. And not just that, but waiting for a Disney film in which she would be turned eventually into an actual cat. <laughs> She's amazing. She Yzma's is. an amazing comedy villain. It's Eartha Kitt, like, the re- this film is full of great voice actors and great vocal performances, but I feel like Yzma makes this movie. Mm-hmm. And Patrick Warburton's Kronk bounces off of her character perfectly. I know. It's called a cruel irony, like my dependence on you. Oh, God, your Eartha Kit voice is disturbingly good. It's better than my John Goodman. (laughs) 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 It's it's the fact that she's got so much dignity and that she gets that dignity yanked away from her so much that she ends up, not so much the sap, but... The, the, the butt of enough jokes that uh, you can see her, you know, constantly growing ire. They did the same sort of thing with Hades, but they really go all out to, to torment Yzma in this. If anything, she reminds me of Dick Dastardly. Direct! One of them turned off. But we'll stop the rest of them when we blast the pads. You plant the dynamite, Mudley, and I'll give you the signal. <laughs> Now what went wrong? I've got nothing but superlatives. I can't offer anything, but it's just like she's just awesome. Mm. And so specifically, she's obviously very smart and very cunning, and she she thinks ahead to the point where she thinks of an extremely uh, uh, fiendish plan, and then to save on postage, just figures the old the old poison which by the way this is such a quotable film it is Sharon and I still say no touchy spurred on by uh, the no touching in uh, Arrested Development season one (laughs) all of the back and forth with Kronk and it maybe helps that I can do a pretty good Patrick Warburton as well the fact that he's been smart and uh, Kronk is extremely affable but extremely dumb I mean these are elemental comedy that we're talking about here is Pinky in the Brain. It's the Three Stooges, if you will. But there's it is. two of them. Really, Eartha Kitt throws herself into it too. Like she's, she's doing like, she's throwing Mark Hamill Joker energy into this into mm. this character. But it's all it's all toward comedy rather than being sinister or scary. Yeah. And it is so effective, especially paired with a much more, still like very full of character and lively, but also much more kind of monotone Patrick Warburton sort of. <laughs> Like her, the crazy Eartha Kit squealing and laughing and cackling and just Patrick Warburton being very normal and kind of low <laughs> and dumb. I think, let's face it, you're no spring chicken. And I mean that in the best possible way. What? A llama? He's supposed to be dead! Yeah, weird. Let me see that vial. This isn't poison. This is extract of llama! You know, in my defense, your poisons all look alike. You might think about relabeling some of them. Take him out of town and finish the job now! What about dinner? Kronk, this is kind of important. How about dessert? He balances her character so well, though, because making this it's sort of this incredibly wacky comedy, yeah. um, they have, um, and I think this is probably one of the things that Andreas Deja was 
was unhappy about with it, they have extracted a lot of the, the sinister elements of, of what her character is and, mm. and is supposed to be. You know, she's got this obvious basis in the, the Wicked Queen and the, the evil stepmother and, and that kind of thing. This old woman who is uh, very superficial and shallow about what she wants. She's terrified of growing old and so she takes it all out on this this person that she's supposed to be advising and, and supporting um, but the the simple addition of Kronk balances that so beautifully because she can she can do all this ridiculously evil stuff that is just over the top evil mm. um, but because she has this sidekick who's so nice it's almost like it takes the sting out of what she's doing yeah, I mean one of my favourite yeah, one of my favourite scenes for her is when the uh, Kronk's making dinner and she sat with Cusco <laughs> at, the, at the table. And um, it's like, so, he seems nice. Yeah, he yes, is. he is. <laughs> and it's like, that's a really nice little moment because she obviously is quite fond of him. Um, but it's just, it's in a film where the characterisation can get a little bit thin, it's the little things like that that I think mm. really makes them. I think you say characterization gets thin. I think there's enough little asides and little bits where you find out, oh, I was in interpretive dance class. I was at the back because of my weak ankles. You get like loads of little asides which sort of fill in the blanks of what they've done with like how they feel about the world. I actually think this is really because it's just four main characters, it's pretty hot on characterization. Like, um, I think possibly because Patch is so simple and he leads, I suppose uh, you, you get more of a leeway into it, so a window into his life through his family. Yeah. And it's not like yes, they're, they're super true. deep characters, but yeah. they're very, they're very simple. Yeah. It's some, their simplicity works actually astonishingly well. Yzma is very simply just the mad, crazy cackling, mm. cackling, that's uh, a woman who wants to take over the kingdom. Yeah. Uh, Kronk is, simple in every possible way potch is also simple in most possible ways but also just very nice just good like good fellow and uh, kuzco is just awful spoiled guy mm. but they're all super funny in their own way and their comedy ba- like their comedy styles bounce off of each other extraordinarily well and you want to see kuzco start behaving you know more kindly to people so when it finally starts to happen you feel like you're making headway in the film and as uh, since it's a, a technically a road movie that that also sort of stands in line with the progress of it. Yeah, tell me about it. No, no, it's not you. She's not the easiest person to get close to. There's a wall there. Trust me. Are you talking to that squirrel? I was a junior chipmunk, uh, and I had to be versed in all the woodland creatures. Please continue. Ah, uh, why me? Why me? Why? It doesn't always have to be about why, you. Why, why? This poor little guy's had it rough. Seems a talking llama gave him a hard time the other day. Oh, uh, talking llama? <laughs> Do tell. Ah, <laughs> uh, he doesn't really want to talk to you. Well, then you ask him. <sighs> He'd been in the middle. Squeaky, uh, squeak, squeaker, squeaking. <laughs> Jaguars. No kidding. Brutal. Uh, could you give us a little room here? Oh, sorry. A little bit more, please. How is this? Yeah, that's good. Now ask him which way the talking llama went. The absurdity of so many of the gags as well. There's one point where um, Pacha's wife, uh, Chicha, says to the kids, you know what to do. And then the kids put together this incredibly complex set of traps in seconds, which is like, hang on, that was what they were supposed to do? And they just, they know immediately. Just the absurdity of that, which ends up with Yzma rocketing down a hill, getting tarred and feathered and turned into a piñata. And the kids being in about four different faraway places at once to pull it off. I mean, that's like, that's Roadrunner stuff right there. And Oh, um, yeah, this is all, it's super yeah. Warner and Brothers bugs. Looney Tunes. Yeah, there's a lot of bugs in there. That kind of, the, the oh, way, yeah. When uh, Pacha's daughter holds up the pillow and she goes straight through it, he's just sort of holding it in this kind of, ain't I a stinker kind of way. Um, 
I can see how a lot of people might sort of watch it and it would leave them cold and they go, no, it's too wacky. And I, you know, when I sat down to watch it last night, because of, uh, at the moment, I'm grieving the death of Leonard Nimoy. That's how far away uh, this was recorded. Um, I was not in the mood to watch this. It took me, what, 10 minutes to really be enjoying it, which uh, it, yes. it kind of, I really needed it at that point. So, mm. yeah, yeah, I love seeing this huge, well-oiled Disney creative engine mm. put to task making a wacky Chuck Jones comedy movie. Mm. Like, and, and Mark Dandel's the perfect director to have at the helm for that, but previously Looney Tunes stuff is just kind of a small studio effort, just making little shorts to go in little theaters and reels. It was not a big production affair, but I mean, Disney is just the best of the business at this big production stuff, and seeing that put toward, put toward this kind of movie is... Oh, I love it. I think it's great. It's not like them either to um, to lean so heavily on this array of absurd gags. Yeah. Um, you've seen through the the Renaissance, you've had a few here and there that have just popped up every now and again, and oh, occasionally seem a bit out of place. Yeah, um, but, but here. Yeah, mm. <laughs> um, but for some reason in this, possibly because of the saturation, it just works. I mean, this absurd kind of humour is exactly the sort of thing that will tickle me for no apparent reason. Mm. The the bit with the squirrel and the acorn and um, <laughs> Yzma when she gets turned into the cat and does the exact uh, voice, <laughs> that has me in stitches every time. And it's it's such a a silly little throwaway gag. But for some strange reason, it just hits my funny bone perfectly. Oh, agreed. The whole finale of uh, the, yeah, them getting back to the castle and just the big, the big finish. I once, I, as soon as I had that on DVD, I pretty much framed through that entire last fifteen minutes. <laughs> Even before I'd started actually formally studying animation, just because I loved it so much, it was mm. just trying to kind of piece together what what was making me laugh so much about all these little bits. But yeah, this is a incredibly quotable movie that. The returning gag of the, that's, okay, why does she even have that lever? <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> the restaurant scene, the diner bit, is probably my Oh my God, yes. It's just that the, it's, Bless it's, you for coming out in public. It's that waitress's <laughs> attitude, which is fantastic. Welcome to Mudka's Meat Hut, home of the mug <laughs> of meat. What'll it be? <clears throat> We'll have two specials. Is that all right, dear? Oh, whatever you say, Pumpkin. You know what I like. <laughs> We're on our honeymoon. Bless you for coming out in public. So that's two specials. And an onion log. <laughs> to split. <laughs> Ordering, I need two heartburns and a deep-fried doorstop. Okay, so I'll admit, this was a good idea. When will you learn that all my ideas are good ones? Well, that's funny, because I thought that you going into the jungle by yourself, being chased by jaguars, lying to me to take you back to the palace, were all really bad ideas. Oh, yeah, anything sounds bad when you say it with that attitude. Hot and crispy pill bug for the happy couple. Mazel tov. Uh, and it's also <gasps> the way that Kronk settles so immediately into the... Three onkers wearing pants, plate of hard egg, basket of grandma's breakfast, and chase a bull to a gill. And uh, just he's just straight away, and it's like, oh, suddenly he's a short order chef, and that's uh, judging full price. And just the way that that scene like goes, then they're going back and forth through the doors. It's like French farce. While you're laughing that off, and just sort of try to recover from that, they're doing the menu thing, and it's just like down, up, down, up, and then turn to the side, but they're never going to see each other. Hey, how about a side of potatoes, my buddy? You got it. One cheese on those potatoes. Thank you, Kronk. Cheddar will be fine. Cheddar spuds coming up. Spuds, yes. Cheese now. Hold the cheese. No, I want the cheese. Cheese it is. Cheese me no likey. Cheese up. Cheese in. Oh, come on. Make up your mind. Okay, okay. On second thought, make, make my, my potatoes, potatoes a salad. Uh, the concentration of that followed by the scene at Patcha's house with the you know what to do which also involves the uh, the, the skipping scenario crunk it's time which immediately <laughs> takes all of the wind out of Yzma's sails and has her in between two skipping ropes at that same time and um, again Kronk's being so gentle and playful with the kids it's just a great way of sort of like saying look Yzma's not all bad because she has him around so you kind of you're almost rooting for her to win as well so to gather up to that point the the bit with the um, when they're inside the closet and you can only see their eyeballs as I believe the first <laughs> time ever Disney's ever done just eyeballs in the dark because uh, that's that's not been that's not their thing before I'm sure that they've like um, had like 
a couple of eyeballs showed up in maybe like Aladdin, but like for a sustained eyeballs in the dark closet gag, that's the first. Um, <laughs> and using them to act as well. Yeah. <laughs> with the Eastmas, like, oh, fine. It's like, let us out of this closet this instant, or we'll burn your house to the ground. Oh, which with the is big it? eyes going like big a pretty crucial conjecture. <laughs> Yeah, and the, and the kids are just alarmingly precocious as well. And uh, But yeah, the, then, like, while it should be kind of gathering towards the comedy, you also have the dip, which is the natural point where this would normally happen in any good Disney, specifically any good Pixar film as well, where um, the, uh, the hero character gets told, no, everything you wanted to happen is not going to happen. Now how are you going to deal with this? And, um, and you, that's very crucial. Cusco needs to go through that because if he doesn't, if he just goes from being a complete git to being actually a little bit kinder, he's not really done it in the organic way where he has goes from having everything to having nothing. So he need, he needs that badly, which, by the way, reminds me of uh, 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 a line that Isma spouts at the beginning, which reminds me of our current prime minister. Hopefully, by the time this goes out, our ex prime minister, David Cameron. And it is no concern of mine that your family does has no. What was it you said? Uh, Food? Ha! You really should have thought of that before becoming peasants. It's such a brilliant way of showing terrible opulence and complete lack of compassion in one quick, fun way. And also, I didn't notice this until I saw it on Blu-ray. There's some lovely texture in there. It looks like just big blocks of color. But if you look very, very closely in HD, there's some some lovely kind of, uh, uh, like... Uh, uh, roughness to the, um, uh, the the fabrics and the the, the walls around them, and uh, it's it's actually quite beautiful at times. There's one lovely shot where uh, at the low point when Cusco sort of wakes up in the morning after the rain, and he he goes towards uh, the the meadow, and then the sunlight streams in through behind him, and it uh, catches on birds, and these sh- like beams of shadows come away from the birds. And it's just this wonderful sort of framed shot, which looks like it actually belongs in something more like Bambi. And they don't make a gag out of it. He's just, you know, then goes into the field and, and uh, you know, tries to just be a regular llama. And he's, he's lost everything and pulled himself back up. And it's just a lovely kind of moment. Let's get psychological for a bit, because this is our show after all. Kronk's shoulder angel and devil sequence was the latest in a long line of this kind of gag. But have you ever stopped to think about what these mean in fiction and psychology? The angel is our conscience, fairly obviously, and in our psyche it is the superego, the internal parent advising us strongly to do the morally right and mature thing. The devil is our id, the internal child compelling us to do selfish, gratifying, fun things, even at the expense of others. But the way it plays out with Kronk, having the two conflict with each other, got me thinking about the political spectrum. Hillary Clinton was and remains the epitome of a shoulder angel, nudging us all towards doing the right thing. And many people found that a major turnoff. Donald Trump was and remains the angry toddler screaming for attention, taking whatever he wants, especially if it's not allowed, shitting all over everything to prove his existence. And just like Kronk's shoulder devil, he has nothing but contempt for the angel. The GOP will never respect, I sound like Alex Jones here, the GOP will never respect or play ball with the Democrats or the side of America that they represent. That's that's the truth. We're at a crucial time in our history where our better angels are fighting up against the wall with the self-centered demons of human nature. And Kronk in the middle is the ego, that giant swathe of undecided voters, uncertain who to trust and wondering whether they should muster the intestinal fortitude to lend the more benevolent side of themselves some strength or actively assist in the destructive behavior of the id. Or, of course, they could do nothing, which allows the id to win anyway, because the internal parent needs our strength and dedication. The id only needs our compliance. You're not just gonna let him die like that, are you? My shoulder angel. Don't listen to that guy. He's trying to lead you down the path of righteousness. I'm gonna lead you down the path that rocks. I'll come off it. You'll come off it. You. 
You. You. You infinity. Ah. Listen up, big guy. I got three good reasons why you should just walk away. Number one. Look at that guy. He's got that sissy stringy music thing. We've been through this. It's a harp, and you know it. All right. That's a harp, and that's a dress. Robe. Reason number two. Look what I can do. <laughs> but what does that have to do with him? No, no. He's got a point. Listen, you guys. You're sort of confusing me, so, uh, be gone. Uh, or, uh, you know, however I get rid of you guys. That'll work. <laughs> Gosh, it's so, it's just so quotable. It, it's the same problem we had, I guess, running into Aladdin and a bunch of these other comedy ones. Mm. We really just want to sit quoting the movie all day. Yeah. This would maybe work better as a commentary, although it would just be us laughing. It would be, yeah. yeah. No, what if you haven't watched this movie? Yeah, please I mean, go watch it. It is so. I mean, what we've described so far must be hilarious. I'm sure. <laughs> the thing is, though, if you look at the way the the script is structured and even the story is structured, there isn't really anything that makes this specific to. Um, the Aztec period or no, um, yeah. or South America. You could literally almost set this anywhere. <clears throat> there was almost one mess up at the end. Uh, originally, Cusco was going to, rather than bulldozing Patch's um, patch uh, ground, he was going to go to the nearby uh, hilltop and uh, destroy that to build his uh, water park. And Sting wrote them a very terse letter saying, sorry, that's exactly the opposite of everything I stand for. Could you please rewrite that? So... He just built a small pool cabana there and slid down a naturally occurring water slide, which is great. And it's so natural to the film that it's kind of like fits perfectly in with like, like if he did smash down another hill and build a water park, he hasn't learned anything. Yeah. So yeah, now good on your sting for that one. Good, Absolutely good right. note. Yeah. Absolutely was. And also, yeah, as long as we're recommending, find and watch the sweat box as well. Maybe watch it after. You've seen it yeah, yeah. no, You need to know that it, 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 well, <laughs> it might spoil it a little bit. So you're not thinking you of Roger Aller's sad face the entire time you're watching. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, what makes. Roger Aller's sad faces are simply red cover band. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's the uncensored look at things, which Disney rarely gives you any. Like, even. They will occasionally give you an honest look back at production of stuff, but it's always way back in retrospect and it's usually because it's so far removed you can't really feel the all the emotion of the moment like you can with this one like like so often in documentaries like this or behind the scenes stuff you're gonna see these fabricated glamour shots of executives like Katzenberg sitting in the story room laughing with the team and they're all having a grand time it's just so obviously staged for the day people with cameras were gonna be in the room but here you've got executives like Schumacher and Schneider giving brutally blunt feedback after these screenings. It's hard to listen to. You've got Sting expressing frustration with the process he's never had to work with before. And there's this wonderful honesty to it. And yeah, Sting is seen complaining a lot of the time, but you can still totally understand his irritation because, I mean, he's an artist, he's got his own working process, and his approach to creation does not fit well with the Disney animations production process and mm -hmm. he doesn't really realize that what he's committing himself to until it's too late and and yeah the Disney executives are seen being harsh bastards but they're just casually dismissing years of other people's hard work but that's also them doing their job I mean, they're presented with in progress stuff by people from countless departments every day and they've they've got to give their notes quickly and directly and without any cushioning tact because if changes are needed they should happen sooner rather than later or it's going to get expensive that sort of behavior may often get these guys like labeled as just the bad guys or just whiny and egotistical in Sting's case I've heard some kind of referring to him his role in this film that way but I mean, we can and do frequently question the judgment of Disney Studio executives, but I find that getting an honest look at their role in the process makes them a little more sympathetic. Mm. And, and maybe this is just because I've I've seen this process up close before, and I've I have watched this happen. Actually, I've seen this I've seen this sort of production stopping train wreck happen, and it doesn't always have a happy ending like it does with this one. Sometimes movies just get shelved and they disappear, and all that, and people leave, and it, it doesn't have this happy ending at the end of all of it but this time despite everything emperor's new groove goes through before it reaches theaters despite all of the heartbreak and anxiety you'll see through the whole thing it actually results in a great movie which i think is makes this a is part of what makes this a brilliant documentary because it shows that the great disney films you love 
do actually all go through something like this. It won't be as severe, but these little production road bumps happen in every movie, and it's this, and it, it's just like this, and it's the same anxieties and the same heartbreaks and the highs and lows. This, this is the perfect documentary about the Disney animation process, so highly recommended. <laughs> you can also make a game out of it, because every time they cut to Sting and whatever he's up to, he's always in some remote new corner of the world, and if you think Playing of that the bongos as, in Papua New Guinea. Yeah, or sitting in his backyard shirtless writing songs, or <laughs> he's up in the Himalayas, or he's in like Russia his or someplace in like in a, a Turkish of bath. Helicopters at... Yeah. He's, he, if you treat that like it's a running gag, this film gets way funnier. If you yeah, just it's, pretend, like, it's, like, it's a wildlife documentary covering Sting. And so we can <laughs> see Sting at dusk scurrying towards a buffet. Yeah, if you just play the game of like, oh, it's, we're going back to Sting. Where is he now? <laughs> just, and like they just came up with some weird random place for him to be doing a random thing to shoot his part of the documentary. It's actually pretty funny. I'm on the phone to Sting right now. He's riding around in a truck with a shotgun and a dog. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I honestly would urge Disney to release a, a Kingdom of the Sun edition of The Emperor's New Groove with the original sweatbox on a separate disc with the best working print they can pull together of what Kingdom of the Sun would actually have been, the 25% version, just so that you could see the closest that it got to. You know? That would have been lovely. I would love to see that. Because just like it would, it would show humility. It would show, look, we made mistakes back then. And you know what? Those mistakes it sometimes, like, not even necessarily made mistakes. We made harsh decisions. And a lot of people were, were very sad as a result of it. But uh, ultimately, it is a desperately cutthroat business uh, having to produce movies because effectively you're trying to turn an amount of money into a much larger amount of money and the best they can possibly do is to allow artists to do what they want and in the case of the next one the artists were given about as much free reign and as much ease of use of being able to do their film that they wanted to do as much as they possibly could so, so it's almost like the Disney execs felt bad and they were like right let's get the next lot who at the time were, were you know, producing it in tandem, um, the most freedom they can possibly have doesn't necessarily mean they'll be onto a financial winner. But ultimately, Disney have not made a habit of treating artists badly for quite some time. Yeah. At this stage. <laughs> Unfortunately, Emperor's New Groove did pretty much flop. It barely made its money back. And Apparently, it made $170, uh, sorry, $170, $170 million, and it cost allegedly $100 million. Now, I'd like to think that they probably wrote a lot of the original development expenses off. No, no, well, they would. They, the Kingdom of the Sun budget, all yeah. that stuff that sank into it, would also have been factored into that budget, which is why gotcha. this would be so expensive. And so fair enough. That's, I mean, that's why Tangle is that expensive, too. It had a very bumpy production. But. But ultimately, I mean, they didn't market it very much heavily either. I think they, by this point, they had lost a lot. They were just trying to get the film out and released and done, and maybe it would. At least do we well, saw the trailer, though. We got. I think it was on the uh, the the DVD for Toy Story Two. Yeah, I and, remember the trailers too. Yeah, and I watched that repeatedly. I was like, I probably want to go and see that, as opposed to say something like Mars Needs Moms, which I don't think anyone was aware of. Oh, I've we forgotten should, about it. Thank you. We should cover Mars Needs Moms at some point. Maybe not necessarily within this uh, series, but uh, I want to cover the lifespan of Image Movers Digital. So, yeah. I know I definitely want to do Beowulf in entirety because I love that film. Groove was released against some pretty strong box office competition, too. Not necessarily mm. great movies, but stuff that would definitely have been putting a lot of butts in well, seats. Monsters, so Inc. came out a month before. True, but like even I think the same weekend, I think uh, what else came out? There were several. I mean, even the same like all right, like the same week. Where is it? That it's was it was it was like what women want, which is not a great movie, but it's like it's Mel Gibson. What at women time want not people, to watch a Tex Avery style Disney cartoon <laughs> at a time when people would have wanted to see Mel Gibson in a romantic comedy. Dude, where's my car? So that's a demographic pulled oh. away. Uh, Jim Carrey's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Not a great film, but it definitely like would pull a lot of people away from yeah. Emperor's New Groove as well. This isn't this isn't as bad as releasing 2011's Winnie the Pooh the same weekend as the final Harry Potter film, but it's almost as dumb. Yeah. Yeah. But it does whatever. The film's great anyway. It's it did really a lot better on DVD, I think, than it did in theaters, and uh, it is still absolutely worth your time. So, go watch it.
School of Movies is funded by our loyal supporters on Patreon. And our $15 tier get named support credit. So thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. And we will be back next week with Atlantis, The Lost Empire. And we will leave you with a special treat, the deleted song that was originally intended for Isma, sung by Eartha Kitt, the greatest Catwoman ever. Looking for this. Is that my voice? Is that my voice? Oh well. No, no, don't drop it! I'm not going to drop it, you fool. I'm going to drink it. And once I turn back into my beautiful self, I'm going to kill you! <laughs> when a woman acquires a certain age, and the men who adored you no longer swoon, it pays to avoid the sunlit days and live by the light of the kindly moon. But the moon grows old just like us all and her beautiful years are done. So now she prays through endless days to take her revenge on the sun. a girl at my daddy's side, papa, the royal mortician, revealed to me in secret signs, the mark of the magician, and daddy was no dummy, did outrageous 
things with the mummy And off on the stiffs that he would drive Would look better dead than they did alive I studied well, I learned the trade I thought my looks would never fade If I could find that recipe To give the eternal youth to me It was always my ambition To use Papa's tuition And gain some small remission From the vagaries of time Every ray of sunshine Robbed me of my youth Who to blame, who the one, who to curse You know the only one to blame would be my enemy, the sun Promises you made to me I've really stopped at nothing Murder, treachery and lying Whatever it takes to keep my looks You really can't blame a girl for trying 